Hello and welcome back to the Herbert Smith Free Hills Tax Podcast. My name is Toby Eggleston, a partner in the Melbourne office, and joining me today, Professor Graham Cooper. How are you going, Graham? I'm well, Toby. I hope you're well. I am indeed. I'm all the better for uh, joining us the first time, James Pettigrew. Welcome, Jane. Thank you very much, Toby. It's it's great to be here. My first podcast ever, not just at HSF. We'll see how we go. Now, James, do you want to give a brief introduction to our listeners of your experience and expertise? Yes, certainly. So I have been practicing in tax now for over 32 years. So that makes me feel very old. I was at the predecessor firm some time ago, started in July of 91 as a grad all the way through to, to June of 2013. Then I succumbed to the delights of Big Four World. So I was offered a Big Four firm for about nine and a half years and I have rejoined, I would say, HSF. And this is my second week, but very much enjoying it so far. I'm really enjoying the law firm environment and, and meeting people and making connections here. It's been fantastic. Excellent, James. As I said, it's a pleasure to have you on board. So today we are going to recap on the developments in relation to thin capitalization. Back in March 2023, uh, Treasury released an exposure draft of the proposed changes to the thin cap provisions, which to a large degree reflected what the ALP policy was. However, the draft also included a proposal to repeal section 2590, which would in effect deny deductions for interest used to acquire shares in non-resident subsidiaries where the dividends would not be accessible in Australia. Not surprisingly, there was a bit of backlash to that proposal as section 2590 and its POFR equivalent, section 2030-15, have been part of the Australian tax landscape for the last 23 years. That stood in abeyance whilst the consultations went on. And then late in June, just before the proposed commencement date, the government introduced the bill, Treasury Laws Amendments, Making Multinationals Pay Their Fair Share, Integrity and Transparency Bills 2023. Now, the good news was that the repeal of Section 2590 effectively deferred by the government and it will be considered further. One of the surprises in that bill was that the government would seek to introduce debt creation rules, which hark back to Division 16G of the 1936 Income Tax Assessment Act. And so it's probably appropriate, Graham, to throw to you to give us the background on those debt creation rules as they stood and the differences, as you see, under these new proposed provisions. Yes. So, Toby, one of the advantages of being old is that I can remember uh, when these rules were enacted. So, Division 16G lived from 1987, and it was an attempt to codify what had been the practice of the Foreign Investment Review Board, which is that when a foreign entity bought an Australian entity, they couldn't gear it up any more than it was geared already by adding in internal debt. Uh, and so the structures that they were most concerned about was foreigner buying Australian company and then uh, organizing for that foreign owner to add new debt into the Australian operation that it had just bought, typically by having the Australian thing borrow money to buy assets from other related people. So that was the drama. The drama was always about arrangements which made the Australian target 
have a larger interest expense than it would otherwise have had. Ship forward 20 years and the Treasury at the time decided that the thin capitalization rules that were being introduced were going to be sufficient to deal with the issue of debt on money borrowed to buy shares in foreign subsidiaries and new debt that might be added into an Australian enterprise. And so Treasury's thinking when they enacted the new thin capitalization rules was, we don't need to have a rule which denies you a deduction for interest on money borrowed to buy shares in foreign subsidiaries. So they added in 2590 to say, yep, you keep your interest deduction. FinCap will protect Australia. And the same thing for Division 16G. We don't need another rule to protect uh, Australia against the foreigners loading up the Australian operations with extra debt. Thin capitalization will do that well enough. And so we don't need to have a Division 16G. This was all part of a single package that was negotiated by Treasury. We changed thin cap rules. That lets us have 2590. We don't need Division 16G. And so those rules were removed. The new version that's in the bill that was introduced into Parliament in June claims that it is the successor to Division 16G, but I think it's fair to say there's not a lot of family resemblance in there anymore. There is no great reference to loading up the Australian operations with extra debt, as we'll talk about, no doubt, uh, in more detail shortly, but it's a long way from where 16G used to be. Okay. And James, perhaps you can take us through the precise provisions and description of the new debt creation. Yep. Essentially, it is a regime. I'd call it a regime, albeit it, it probably only covers five pages of the legislation. Pretty brief, but potentially far-reaching. A regime that basically disallows all or part of a debt deduction of an entity where they're within certain classes within the SINCAP rules, defined by reference to the terms in the SINCAP rules. But then critically, it's really one of two use cases potentially where you're going to engage the rules. So the first one is where an entity acquires a CGT asset or a legal or equitable obligation, we'll probably come back to that term obligation and where it actually will apply here because it does seem curious. So the entity acquires either the asset or the obligation directly or indirectly. Here we have the weasel words through one or more interposed entities from one or more other entities, each of which is a disposer. And critically, one or more of these disposers is an associate pair of the acquirer. So here's this concept of the parties being related. And I think as Graham mentioned previously, there's this concept of loading up debt in a related party group, which is something obviously that I guess there is a family resemblance. There's the old 16G or bet that the detail of these two regimes is quite different. And so the relevant debt deduction, I think critically is wholly or partly in relation to any of the following, an acquisition of an asset from that associate pair or it is in relation to the acquirer's holding of the relevant CGT asset or legal or equitable obligation. So I'll probably pause there. That's the first use case. I don't know whether we've got any comments on those at, at this point. So it is going to become important, uh, James, a bit later that this rule is triggered 
regardless of where you're getting the debt from. Yes. So it, I can go to a third party and borrow money, but if I'm spending the money in an inappropriate way, I've got problems. And that's, we'll see, is going to be different from when we get to the second test. Yep. And that is problematic because there will be lots and lots of transactions where people will be trying to acquire assets from other entities in the group. And if there's debt around, there will be dramas about whether that debt has been used to fund that acquisition. And if you want to keep an asset, so if you want to refinance or you find that you've got some expenses associated with holding this asset that you now need to meet. So if you go out and refinance or you go out and take on new debt, even for an asset that you already own, you're in some trouble with this rule. Yeah, I think that's the reference to holding. And I know that there are some examples in the EM, but I'd say in relation to these core concepts, and I'm particularly curious about the concept of holding. And, and I do agree, refinancing is obviously a, a particularly clear application there, but there could be others. There's very little by way of explanation in, in the EM. Whether that's deliberate or not, I don't know. I, I am um, somewhat amused by the change in terminology. I think, Toby, you read out the, the full text of the, the name of the bill. Uh, it features integrity. When you look at the exposure draft, it was simply measures for future bills, sin, capitalization, interest limitation. Yes, the integrity flavor is certainly probably always there, but it's very evident now. And I think particularly in these provisions. So we'll possibly just pass to that, the second use case, just to get those two main features of the legislation on the table. And then I think we can probably continue with some commentary. So the second one, as Graham mentioned, I think it's even more associate laden than the first. And I think I read it and I, I think of the old who's on first, what's on second. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of associates in this thing. So I'll just uh, do my best to get through it. And then perhaps we can try to demystify it. Uh, so this second use case essentially is debt that is facilitating a payment or a distribution within a related party group, I think is the best general way to put it. But there's an awful lot of detail, I think, that lies beneath the surface of that um, deceptively simple summaries. Let's get into the, the details somewhat and apologies for what follows. But uh, this particular provision applies where an entity is an associate pair of another entity. So you've got two parties that are associates. They're referred to respectively as the, and here comes the who's on first, the first associate and the second associate. And then that first associate issues a debt interest to the second associate. So there's the related party debt feature of this use case. And then the first associate, the party that's borrowed, typically uses the proceeds of issuing the debt interest predominantly to fund, facilitate the funding of or increase the ability of any entity to make one or more payments. So let's just not lose sight of that terminology, payments or distributions with a reference to a very old provision 26 BC that it makes to one or more in other entities, each of which is a recipient. And then we pass to the associate requirement for the recipient. So one or more of the recipients, each of which is an associate recipient is an associate pair of either the first associate or the second associate. So the borrower or the lender to try and just demystify somewhat. So there's an awful lot of associates in there, but the basic point of it is to limit deductions in that type of use case. And I'll probably just pause there because I'm sure people are desperately trying to catch up and work out 
who's on first and who's on second. Yeah, and it's probably useful just to give a very basic example. So as I understand, would apply where you've got an entity borrowing from its associate effectively, for example, to pay a dividend to another associate or that associate. I think one of the many interesting things uh, in this bill is that although the examples in the EM refer to it all being effectively cross-border, there isn't any such limitation in the actual wording, the draft bill. So whilst it won't apply in the case of funds being lent inside the consolidated group to fund a dividend or return of share capital within the consolidated group, but if you've got a joint venture and one of the parties is lending to the JV, then that could apply in that circumstance. Yeah, I think the TCG point is well made and it, it has had some attention. I think that's possibly where it's quite convenient to fall into this trap of thinking about foreign parties, a broad distinction between TCG, Australia and foreign parties. As you correctly point out, that's actually not the limitation of it. And JVs is, is a classic example, also non-consolidated but in inverted commas, controlled groups in a corporations act seems similar. Toby, just, if I can add in a couple of things, just by way of differentiation, this provision has got no ancestry in the old division 16 G's. This one is the one I was thinking about when I say they've, they've lost the family resemblance here. The other thing to notice about this rule is we're looking at money that you've borrowed to spend not money that you've borrowed to go and buy something. Okay. So 2590 is trying to get control of money or relax the control on money that you've borrowed to buy things. And if 2590 goes, then borrow to buy becomes problematic. This one is borrow to spend. And that's a little bit weird that we're concerned about that transaction. The other thing to notice here is, as James was saying, everybody's got to be inside the tent. Unlike the first limb, where you borrow from anybody to buy from an associate or you're trouble, in this one, it's only if you're borrowing from an associate that you've got yourself a drama. So there'll be some concerns there. And the last point, something that James has already mentioned, but it's worth just dropping anchor on a little bit. They go out of their way in the draft to say, you don't really need to follow the money around the countryside. So it will be enough if you borrowed money and it helps you make some payment. You don't actually have to borrow to make the payment. It'll be enough if it makes it easier for you to make some other payment. Oh, and by the way, that payment might already have happened. So we don't care that there's a I borrow, I spend, I can spend and then borrow and I'll be in some trouble with these rules. And they go out of their way to say, it doesn't need to be a series, can look like a whole collection of disjointed transactions. And that's close enough to these rules. So this is pretty ambitious territory in a space where people may be scratching their heads a lot. I think that tracing point is well made. When they previously were proposing to repeal 2590 way back, and that was 2013, I, the, the, the similar response to, to that was a comment about tracing and being required to trace. And here again, I, I think linking back to the integrity point we made earlier, the wide reach of this 
really is all about integrity, but I think practically actually trying to comply with this is going to be extremely difficult. And you would hope that there would be some quite detailed guidance that will come out most likely from the ATO about how people can actually go about complying with this. And the last point I would make is one about transitionals here. So the basic transitional rule for the thin cap changes essentially extends to, to this particular regime. So it's first assessment on or after 1 July 2023. So if you go back to the first use case, you could have had an arrangement to acquire an asset from somebody an awful long time ago. If you have debt that basically relates to that acquisition, you trip over 1 July 2023 and you're into these rules. So I understand that people have made quite lengthy and detailed submissions on that particular interaction in the context of these rules. It's always hard to read where these things are going to end up. I think once it does hit the Senate committee, my own view is that there's limited possibilities for big changes. Maybe this is, is one of them. I'm not too sure, but I certainly know that people are interested in it. Yes, it's ironic, James, isn't it, that they pulled the repeal of 2590 because there was 20 years worth of eggs to unscramble and they propose a new rule, which has also got 20 years worth of eggs to unscramble. Totally agree. And I think the other thing, if we're ranging into commentary, is that the comment about how this actually does intersect with other parts of the, the thin cap regime. It, it seems to be intended to be somewhat part of that part of the act that the changes to thin cap have been covered in a previous podcast. They are quite extensive. It seems that you can trip over these rules and it's not clear what the interaction with ThinCap is, whether if you trip over ThinCap or you're partly denied, it seems that to the extent there's deductions remaining, they can potentially be captured by these rules. Also, I think to focus in on one particular industry, the commentary that went on in relation to the ED around uh, exemptions and particularly exemptions for typical securitization vehicles covered by provision 82039 uh, that excited certainly some industry commentary as so far as the wider ThinCap rules were concerned that seems to have been remedied now but we do have within these uh, particular provisions essentially a rerun of that same problem which is if there are securitization entities that are exempt from ThinCap as a result of 82039 they could fall fair and square into this first use case acquisition from associate. Typically the securitization vehicle will be an associate of the originator and they're acquiring assets from that originator. Doesn't seem to be anything currently that takes them out. Again, in industry submissions have been made on that point and people are hopeful, but it's, it's curious that the same problem can be replicated in a very short period of time in essentially the same piece of legislation. Yeah. You would have thought perhaps they might have address that and not fall on over the same log. I think just coming back to that first example, one issue we've been grappling with, the legislation talks about acquiring a CGT asset from a disposer. And one of the issues that we've been thinking about is whether that would include a subscription for shares where there's no actual disposition by the entity receiving the funds. Any thoughts on that, Graham? I, I, I don't hold out much hope on that score, Toby. <laughs> there is a definition uh, of disposal in the legislation. It's there to give you a time of acquisition and disposal, but it also says, by the way, if there's a time, then a disposal happened as well. 
So it's one of those bootstrap provisions in the CGT rules. So I think you can have an event which will be a disposal because there will have been the event of an acquisition. And the fact of disposal is given to you, as it turns out, by the timing rule. So it's not a neat fit, but it is nevertheless, I think, a pretty fair bet that the ATO will not be terribly enthusiastic about the idea that you didn't acquire a CGT asset because the other person wasn't the disposer. You will have acquired for CGT purposes. And the word disposer, I suspect they will say, is just an amusing little byplay. We could have called that person an elephant and we'd still have the answer that we've got. You had an acquisition. Yeah, there's uh, a comment in the AEM that the provisions are drafted broadly to help ensure they are capable of applying to debt creation schemes of varying complexities. No doubt they will be taking a very broad ambit in interpreting this. And, and I think these rules will need to be carefully considered for any related party debt outside the tax consolidated group. Is there any other points we want to make on this point before moving on to the additional anti-avoidance provision that's been included? James, I think I, you, want, you wanted to mention something about the use of the word obligation. Yeah, I think it's curious because as Graham said, the, the, the core concept here in this first use case is an entity acquires. And so you naturally think in tax world, an entity acquires an asset and then it continues on and it introduces this concept of a legal or equitable obligation. So it seems it can extend to an entity acquiring a legal or equitable obligation. And you said, obviously, and it is reflected in the EM that it's drafted very broadly to capture a number of different situations and the mind boggles at what particular situation might be encapsulated within an entity acquiring an equitable obligation. My mind goes to potentially securitizations, but again, in securitizations, you're always thinking about rights. You're not necessarily thinking about obligations. So. It is, I think, the great fear of the unknown. I come back to that word integrity, and it seems to me that there is a, a modern trend in drafting, particularly in, in the rules that we see in, in tax land recently, and I think of some of the franking rules as well, where it's, let's put it in its widest possible terms. We don't really know what it's going to extend to, but we'll just capture as much as we possibly can with, with this broad wording. Uh, so I, I'd just say, watch this space, and, and, and they're there is a great fear of the unknown there. Yes. Just to unpack that a, a, a little bit, you could read these words as simply saying somebody acquired an obligation from the associate that the obligate that person currently holds. And you'd say, oh, that, that's just another kind of CGT asset that's being purchased. So that would make those words or obligation kind of otios. Because if I'm simply purchasing an obligation that from that other guy, that other guy holds, then you'd say it doesn't add anything. On the other hand, you could read these words as saying, oh, I've taken on a legal obligation and the other party to my obligation is an associate. And that's a description of me taking on any related party debt. Now, I can't believe that they've just attempted to explode any related party debt in this provision. But really, we shouldn't be having to sit here and scratch our heads and say, just how ambitious do we think the 
people who administer these rules are likely to be. Because at one extent, in one scenario, the words are meaningless. They don't really take you very far. At the other end, they blow up all related party debt. You think if they wanted to do that should have been in highlights with neon flashing lights and sirens and symbols. But it's a perfectly plausible reading to say it undoes any debt. Uh-huh. You've taken an obligation and the other party to the obligation is your associate. Now you don't get an interest deduction. And that would just be remarkable. I, I think it's a product of, of a rushed process. And I think it is that aim of just having it very broad ambit and then working out later effectively what it really should apply to and whether that puts pressure on the ACO to provide guidance on, on the application of this in, in a public or a private process would remain to be seen. The other comment that I have heard replayed from some of the consultations is that there will be an initial draft of the rules. It will potentially be passed as legislation and then it may be refined in the following years which is not a super optimal process. But again, I think it's this, let's get something in. It's about integrity. Let's draft it broadly. And then let's see how it plays out over the coming years, which is not fantastic. As if the rules are not drafted broadly enough, the government has also sought to include an anti-avoidance provision, which effectively would apply where it's reasonable to conclude that one or more of the entities each of which is a participant entered into or carried out a scheme for the principal purpose of, or for more than one principal purpose that included the purpose of achieving any of the following results, basically not having these debt creation provisions apply, whether or not the debt deduction is a debt deduction of the participants or whether any of them carried out the scheme or any part of the scheme and the scheme achieved or would have achieved that purpose. That again, a fairly sledgehammer to a walnut approach, it's interesting to think as to what could be the possible application of those rules. I know you've been giving some thought about it, Graham. Yeah. So it's annoying to see this rule inside the debt creation rules because 20 years ago, the Ralph Review, which the government was keen to honour, respect, said we shouldn't have legislation that's littered with these specific anti-avoidance rules buried inside provisions. Sometimes you may need them, but only if there is a particular thing that you need to address and you're concerned that part 4A won't get you there. 20 years is a long time. It's probably, I don't know, 15 generations of treasury officials. And so the new lot have said, let's add in this dedicated anti-avoidance rule just to protect the debt creation rules. It's a rule at large. So unlike part 4A or 45B, where you get a or dividend franking credit stripping schemes, where you get a list of things. So decide whether or not you were doing this in light of this list of things. This rule gives you nothing of that. So it's just look deep inside the soul of the taxpayer. What do you see there? Okay. If it was important to the taxpayer that they that they switch off either of the two limbs, then that's enough to, to say it didn't work. It didn't work. We're going to enliven one of the two limbs against you. So people are scratching their heads saying, just how far is this rule going to go? Can I 
revert to a tracing kind of world and, and point to, to transactions and say, I borrowed this money to buy that asset from third party. I used these retained funds to buy that asset from associate, right? If I've earmarked my money so that neither of those rules will apply, am I now in danger of having the ATO enliven these rules against me? If I stop buying my trading stock from my interposed wholesaler and I now start buying my trading stock from the unrelated manufacturer, am I in trouble? So there is, there's just hours of fun and pleasure to be had in trying to plumb the depths of exactly what's going to be captured by these rules. A lot of people I understand are drawing comfort from the idea that this will only be triggered where there are quite blatant transactions in play. So I work out a way to do something very clever that switches off either of the two transactions. And so plain vanilla transactions will not be captured. I wish them well. I stopped believing in Santa Claus some years ago, but, but maybe the ATO will be a lot more sensible in triggering this rule or not. It's difficult to understand why a specific anti-avoidance rule was needed as opposed to just relying on pass or A mm. in that circumstance. It's purely just a debt deduction. It's not as if there was some specific type of tax attribute that would not otherwise have been captured by uh, pass or A. But that is where we are. So where to next? James, you want to bring us home? I'll attempt to. I think there's a lot of uncertainty in, in where to next. What I would repeat is I'm not sure that there'll be too much change coming out of the, the Senate process. It, it will be interesting. Some people are placing bets on there being some sort of modification of the effect of the transitional rule, which we've already discussed. Uh, we'll have to wait and see on that. I think also the, the industry carve-outs that we've potentially mentioned probably will happen to some extent. The interaction with other exemptions from thin cap and whether they get rolled into this, again, that'll be perhaps something that happens. I think in relation to this anti-avoidance rule, I would be somewhat doubtful that much will change in that. I don't think it'll be removed and as has been suggested, there'll be a, a reliance on part 4A more generally. Language in it, which is uh, somewhat OECD reflective, the principal purpose part in particular. The government of the day seems to like OECD precedent. It plays well politically, so I doubt that's going to go. Uh, I, I would also suggest that they will probably be aiming to hit that target date of 31 August. Given that these measures are largely integrity-driven, they will want them to come in pretty quickly, uh, albeit theoretically we're in the rules already for, I think, the vast bulk of it for 1 July 2023. But I would imagine that this will go through in pretty much the anticipated time frame that there will be a desire to get it passed. And then, as I said earlier, to the extent there are defects or problems that will be fixed down the track. Yes. It being framed as an integrity measure uh, certainly plays to the government mandate. Just on Sunday, the Treasurer, Assistant Treasurer reiterated that they were cracking down on the scourge of multinational tax avoidance, making sure multinationals pay their fair share of tax in Australia. So I doubt there'll be much appetite for watering down these rules. Graham, any closing thoughts? No, watch this space, Toby. I think there's a lot to learn when we try to unpack these rules.
Indeed. Wise words as always, Graham. And to keep up to date, you can subscribe to the podcast. We'll be regularly updating you on all matters Australian tax as and when they drop. We've also have a lot of material on our website, the HSF tax notes. I'll put a link into the show notes, but you can also subscribe and get that delivered directly into your inbox. On that note, thank you once again, Graham. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. Inaugural podcast down. Thank uh, well you. done. Pleasure uh, to be here. True professional, James. Okay. And on that note, thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back soon.